Hey folks, that's uh, with an X, of course. Katie here. Things are going to be a little bit different this week. Jesse is gone. He is off. Actually, I I didn't ask what he's doing and really, who cares? Anyway, so it's just going to be me this week along with Helen Lewis, a uh, reporter for The Atlantic. And Jesse will be back next week. Enjoy the show. is a staff writer at The Atlantic, as well as the author of Difficult Women, A History of Feminism and Eleven Fights. She is also the host of a new radio documentary called The Church of Social Justice, which will air on the BBC on August 16th. We're going to talk about that in a little while. But first, Helen, welcome to Blocked and Reported. I should mention, we've discussed you on the show several times, including a piece that you wrote about people with Tourette's or perhaps people faking Tourette's, specifically on TikTok. And we also discussed you when a voiceover of yours was removed from a video game because of your turfy tendencies. So let's start there. You're a resident of Turf Island, uh, which is the new official name of the UK. And you're frequently grouped in with other feminist writers who've been critical of the new uh, trans ideology and things like self-ID. There's a lot going on on Turf Island right now, and I'm going to ask you about that in a moment. But first, how did you get involved in this particular culture war battle? What was your peaking moment? That's such a historical question for me now. I mean, I feel like some people, you know, kind of people stagger in and they're like, very new to the subject and then they kind of say something on Twitter and they get this kind of thermonuclear blast back at them and they're like wow everybody seems very angry about this and these kind of like I feel like I'm one of the kind of grizzled old veterans kind of sucking on my roll-up being like you should have been around here in 2014 um yeah you're, you're General Washington in this case right exactly yeah so I it was about 2014 I was at the New Statesman then I was deputy editor and I remember it was around the time of the Laverne Cox time cover right which said this is the new civil rights battle Um, And I remember prior to that having, we did a trans issues week, which was very sympathetic. We had people from, I think, various of the campaign groups writing. And some of the stories, you know, were really affecting. So people writing about, um, you know, just the difficulties accessing care, the kind of levels of street harassment, you know, the kind of culture of casual cruelty, I think that there was, particularly in the 90s and 2000s. Um, about the idea that people were sort of faking or lying. So my my sympathies were, you know, inevitably on that. I kind of come from the political left. But then these things kept happening that I found quite alarming, right? So Laverne Cox being celebrated on the front cover of Time, for example, Sarah Dighton wrote a piece for me saying, you know, if this is actually what liberation looks like, being kind of squeezed into a tight dress and huge hair extensions, that's not what feminism has said is the, the, the perfect endpoint for women. So what, when did this suddenly become the aspirational thing for women? And then there were more and more instances like that. And then what happened is 2015, there was a, a parliamentary inquiry led by somebody, Maria Miller, a Tory MP, so a right-wing MP, who had been, until that point, been best known for slightly fiddling her expenses. And she clearly decided that the great comeback was her being champion of feminism. The first inquiry she held was this inquiry into, into trans issues. And what came out of that is that they didn't have any feminist groups speak. Um, it was only trans groups. And But there were still people like prison governors who said, well, hang on a minute, if we go to pure self-ID, there are real problems here because what will happen when a male rapist wants to be in a female prison? Like That's something we need to think about in advance. And she just sort of blissfully steamrolled past all that, past all the people saying the real problem here is access to medical care and funding, and then kind of came out with like, ta-da, self-ID. Um, <laughs> hooray, everyone's going to th- you know, thank me and be brilliant. And of course, people didn't. Actually, lots of the feminist groups at that point went, hold on, we do 
we need a bit more scrutiny of this as a policy. And then she got very angry, so they were fake feminists. Um, and that really, for me, was the the tipping point, because I've always been interested in this as a policy issue, right, as an issue of policy capture by interest groups and then rushed decision-making that doesn't take into account evidence because ideology comes first. I think some American listeners will find this interesting that the Tories are the the party that sort of started all this in the UK. Right. So there's there's a line from Faulty Towers, right, about American bellicosity, where they say having turned up late for the last world war, they're very keen to be on time for this one. <laughs> and I sort of think that applies to the conservative attitude to, to trans issues. So um, Labour put through civil partnerships, which was the first version of gay marriage. And then David Cameron upgraded that to gay marriage. And he said this great thing, which was, I don't back gay marriage in spite of being a conservative, I back it because I'm a conservative, right? Mm -hmm. Marriage is a conservative institution about the stability of society and the family. Absolutely. And and I think they kind of thought, oh, this is very exciting. People are being nice to us. Like, <laughs> you know, it's really, it's it's really good to be not sort of depicted as these kind of sour-faced right-wingers anymore. And they quite liked it. And it was always presented, right, self-ID as in a, in a way that I think is very sympathetic to the right and to libertarians, which is everyone should be free to be whoever they want to be. And that's an incredible, like that's an obviously a sort of fundamentally libertarian message is if you don't live on a society and your actions affect everybody else. So I don't think this issue has been a, I know it's not ended up like that in America, but I think one of the reasons it's become such a kind of corporate thing is that it's very easy to just say, I think everyone should be their authentic self. And the only people who are going to suffer for this are boring middle-aged women. Well, who cares about them? Okay, so the Tories, the, so for American listeners who might not be aware of this, are not the equivalent of the Republican Party in the UK because you're much farther to the left of us on basically all issues. Yeah, they're like the Democrats, right, basically. Right. Yeah. And so what would the Labour Party be the equivalent of? The uh, social social yeah, Democrats well, or something? Yeah, yeah not, not, uh, not quite as far left as Bernie, but, um, you know, they came out of the, the, the Labour Union movement. They were a working class party in their original version, which I'm just not sure either of the main American parties quite have that kind of proletariat sort of origin, do they? And so what is the, as this has evolved over the past few years, does this, is this still an issue that the Tories, the Conservatives in the UK champion? No. And what's been really interesting is that it's been the uh, leadership contest for the next Tory leader who is therefore the next Prime Minister, right, to replace Boris Johnson. And not only has Liz Truss, one of the contenders, made a big deal about the fact she was a qualities minister and she's kind of basically said, I put a stop to all of this. I made sure that, you know, um, there was proper scrutiny. But even Rishi Sunak, who has never in his political career, as far as I can remember, shown any particular interest in feminism, is suddenly sort of saying, I'm going to go and fight the woke blob. Um, it's obviously incredibly popular with the you know, 150,000 odd Tory activists who are much more likely to live in the south of England, to be, you know, white, to be wealthier, to be over 65, to the extent that the only candidate who was truly pro self ID, Penny Morden, had to basically her first thing out of the gate was to say, I've actually always known what a woman is. Um, it has become a kind of, on the right now, there is very little enthusiasm for. Um, trans women or women in exactly the same way as a natal woman. It has, and in some sense, you know, it's extent, it has become a slightly nasty in the a kind of American culture war in that sense. But it's certainly not a mainstream conservative opinion anymore, which was you know, a period of bizarre uniformity between the two main parties here. 
Yeah, that's interesting that the trajectory sort of started in the UK, but now has taken a decidedly sort of American culture wars turn. Yes, thank you, as always, for um, <laughs> importing <laughs> your arguments to us. I do, yeah, I do think it is a particularly um, American argument in, in some ways, because I do think it does have the overtones of faith. And we can talk about this later in regards to the documentary, right? But there is a sort of spiritual quality to it. It's about having a spiritual inner essence. And the best way to understand that is as a kind of gendered soul. Um, and so I think it is an, a more appealing to America, a country that is much more at ease with not only just the idea of the soul, but politicians particularly talking about their souls. That kind of stuff makes people slightly grind their teeth here in the same way that if you had a kind of religion where people sort of throw themselves on the floor and speak in tongues, British people tend to find that quite embarrassing and not know what to say rather than thinking, wow, what a great manifestation of our Lord. Right. <laughs> you don't have snake handlers in the UK? I don't know what that is. It, so it, the best way to describe it would be sort of highly religious people handling venomous snakes uh, in order to prove their, I don't know, their devotion to the Lord or or something like that. They sometimes die. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Okay. We have precisely one venomous snake yeah. that is native to Britain, which is the adder. And like it is, it like basically d doesn't really do much because it's too cold in Britain <laughs> for most of it all the time. It's quite lazy. So uh, yeah, I don't know if you could really test your faith in quite the same way. Yeah. Uh, maybe have to do it with some other, some other British geese or something like that. Geese, um, geese are fierce. Actually, yeah, yeah. you could you yeah. could be a goose handler for for Jesus. Yeah, the British equivalent. Okay, so there's a lot going on in terms of policy developments and and law in the UK, and I'd like you to explain what's going on, starting with Tavistock. Helen, what the hell is Tavistock? What's going on with it? So the Tavistock Important is a national health service trust. So essentially. You know, our blissful socialized medicine where if you lose your job, you're still allowed to have, you know, cancer treatment. Really? Um, is what? Yeah, That's imagine so, such why? a... It's, it's basically communism. Um, is divided up into individual trusts that are mostly geographic. But this one happens to be based in uh, London. And in a couple of years ago, it was given the contract for like to be the child's gender um, services. There are a couple of satellites. Okay, and, and just to interrupt you really quickly, what is a trust? Uh, it's basically uh, like a, an organization that is a publicly funded but has some autonomy to organize its own affairs. I don't think there is an equivalent, okay. like a health board, I guess. Um, so it, okay. you know, you'd probably have that at the state level. We have that the NHS divided into various kind of areas, and they can kind of commission services out in their local area and just make all those decisions. So the Tavistock does a bunch of other things too, but it also has this thing called GIDS, the Gender Identity Development Service, um, and that became like the clinic. There's a satellite in Leeds and and some other provisions in Scotland and elsewhere, but this is the like the biggie, right? And it was all concentrated here, and. Like almost everywhere else in the world, they both had a huge spike in cases in the last decade, 20-fold, and a dramatic reversal in who those cases were. So it went from being natal biological males predominantly to natal biological females. And as has happened everywhere else in the world, the profile change, right, from kids who had a persistent cross-gender identification in childhood to adolescents to whom this was seemed to be much more recent, much more likely to have autism, much more likely to have other mental health problems, maybe eating disorders, these kind of really complicated cases, maybe trauma. Um, so they suffered all of that stuff that we've seen in America and across the world. And, you know, they were giving out puberty blockers. And a couple of years ago now, a detransitioner called Kira Bell took them to court and said, I was given puberty blockers at 16. I was then had went on to having a double mastectomy. She went on testosterone. I really regret that now. And I shouldn't have been allowed to do that. And it went all the way to the Court of Appeal and judgments went various this way and that. 
But the result of that was, first of all, the regime tightened a lot. Um, it was much more emphasis was placed on parental consent. And then the second thing that happened... And just to interrupt you, was this because of fear of lawsuits or was this because they reevaluated the science, do you think? Well, one of the things that came out of that is that the judges asked for the evidence for, for puberty blockers and the Tavistock said, we'll get right back to you, we don't have it yet. And then they published it almost immediately after that the first bit of that case concluded. And what they found was that of the people in the sample, all but one of the people who they treated with puberty blockers went on to cross-sex hormones. Um, so I remember thinking at the time, whatever the you know outcome of this specific case is, it has established two things. The first is that their judges have called this treatment, quote unquote, experimental. It's not settled. It's not a safe, irreversible pause on puberty. They've said, we actually don't know what's going on here. And then the second one is not, it's a pause on puberty that lots of people opt out of. It's a, it's a ticket on a train that only has one destination. And probably for the initial cohort of patients for whom those drugs were developed, right, who were people who were having puberty at like six years old, it was a pause until you caught up with the rest of your age group and then you could go through puberty at the same time as everybody in your school which was you know it was a it was genuinely at that point a pause but the new usage of them didn't really port that and one of the things that so Hillary Cass is just who is a very distinguished former chief of the Royal Society of Pediatricians has been doing this review into the child gender services. One of the things that she said, which again, we've seen in other countries too, is maybe there is something about puberty itself, which causes children who are gender non-conforming, have gender distress, it causes that to resolve. And if you never let them go through the puberty, you are never going to know who would have grown on to be a happy lesbian or quite effeminate gay boy and who actually is so strongly identified with the opposite sex that they want to transition. Right. And, and studies for, for decades, studies of kids who had been referred to gender identity clinics found that the majority of them did desist once they aged out aged out of, of youth, once they became adults or older adolescents, their dys dysphoria would, uh, would resolve itself. It's called desisting. Right. But this is where the other piece of the puzzle that I think has really developed in the last 20 years comes in, which is the idea of gender identity as this quality that we all possess and that is needs to be, you know, it's there and it's unchanging throughout life and you just need to, you know, access it and understand its spiritual truth because that made it, you know, very much more definitive that you could uncover these kids with this, with this particular gender identity they'd always had. They might just not have known it and then it could be known and it received as the truth. And actually it looks like the reality is a little bit more fluid than that um, and that there are people who live very much on the borderline where they could either take medical treatment or not. And it's it's a very personal decision for them that they, they need to take about what's the best outcome for them. Yes. Yeah, so what happened with Tavistock recently? Well, it's been shut. Uh, I mean, this is a kind of extraordinary thing. So Hilary Cass, as I said, this very distinguished paediatrician was commissioned by the government to do a review into it. Tavistock's gender service had already been related um, inadequate by the commissioner. They said that yeah, they're just not keeping records enough. Um, and if you look back the, through the minutes, they were talking about, the, the Tavistock themselves were talking about the fact that they felt under a huge amount of pressure from mermaids and Stonewall. So that's the child gender charity and one of the big LGBT charities and from parents who had been supported by those charities to deliver a particular outcome. So there was a strong feeling that came through in Cass's report that parents were sort of shopping for an outcome that they wanted. They had got an incredibly distressed child and they knew what was going to fix them. And what was going to fix them was puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones. And what's interesting is I don't think America has got the capacity to make that distinction, right? I think there's much more accepted in the American healthcare system that if you have got the insurance for it and you want it, you should have it. 
And who is anyone else to tell you that you shouldn't have it? Right. And so what does this mean now that Tavistock has been shuttered? What does this mean for kids with gender identity disorder or gender dysphoria going going forward? Well, CAS has been very sensitive, I think, and has not used inflammatory language, right? You have some people calling the Tavistock, you know, kind of an abattoir or it's, you know, it's, um, you know, it's, it's exterminating gay kids or whatever it might be. And she has just not used any of that kind of language at all. The, the interim report had an opening page that said, you know, addressed to gender diverse youth saying like, don't worry, we're still going to treat you. We want what's best for you. So it's not being framed in those American culture war terms as in we're like, we're going to cut down on the, you know, wacko doctors who are Mm -hmm. eating the teats. Like it's just, (laughs) it's a very sensible kind of middle ground. But what she said is essentially in line with Finland and Sweden, the suggestion is you should only be allowed puberty blockers if you're enrolled in a proper clinical trial. So someone comes back and says in two years, five years, 10 years, how are you getting on? Um, both in terms of your happiness with your transition and how is your bone density, you know, how is your brain development? Um, She raised some questions about whether or not that actually the puberty blocking process itself might affect lifetime brain development and ability to make decisions, brain maturation, which is really quite scary when you think that we've been giving these drugs out without knowing what that they do to children's brains. Um, And she, you know, she said, we're just going to have to monitor this much more. And then the other thing that's happening is instead of having like the gender clinic and you have a gender problem and you get sent to the gender clinic, the services are going to be put out into different hospitals around the country. And the effect of that pretty explicitly is that she seems to have thinks that what happens is if you turn up at the Tavistock with all kinds of other problems and gender dysphoria, what gets treated is the gender dysphoria. You know, when you're, a, you know, when you all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And instead, if you put those services, you know, in normal mental health commissioning contexts, it might be decided that actually what is really needed to treat with is the fact that this child's a victim of sexual abuse. This child's got Uh, autism or another developmental disorder this child has an eating disorder and part of that is the fact that they you know um, also want their breasts removed so it does seem to be taking a much more holistic approach that there might be other things going on um, which I just I don't know about you but I just having read that very tortuously long Emily Bazelon article in the New York Times I just think can America get to a place where that kind of evidence is speakable um, it doesn't feel r- likely at the moment. Yeah, this is a really good question. And I'm I'm not sure that the shuttering of Tavistock, which was considered a victory by gender critical feminists in the UK, I'm not sure that that will have much of an impact, at least in the short term, in the US, because this has become such a culture war issue that any attempt to take a more conservative approach to, uh, to gender dysphoria and diagnosing gender dysphoria immediately becomes perceived as a right-wing value. And if something becomes perceived as a right-wing value, then people on the left rebel against that. Yeah, I think you've got this bad situation where half the country think that giving minors any kind of gender-related care is child abuse. And you've got a load of other people who think that withholding gender-related care is child abuse. And once you've introduced that idea that there's one right answer and the other answer is child abuse, I don't know how you climb down that rhetorical ladder. And you're right. The problem here is that I think progressive activists have inoculated themselves from dealing with the uncomfortable reality of the actual evidence we have so far. And what they'll do about Britain is they'll say, well, of course, it's happening in Turf Island where, you know, unlike the gloriously enlightened United States, it's just full of troglodytes <laughs> with bad teeth who, you know, who just hate trans people. Um, and don't drink coffee. Yes. And <laughs> you certainly don't have um, ice cubes in their fridge. I think that's what my <laughs> is always like or really, really disgusted by. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, okay, so this was considered, at least on Twitter, this was the shuttering of Tavistock was was appeared to be considered a victory by gender critical feminists. How did trans activists uh, in the UK react to this? Very quietly. Um, there were a couple of charities that put out statements saying it's good because this means there'll actually be more provision. Um, you know, it was, was one of those things where the, and I always find that with this subject, right, which is that actually when something objectively bad happens, there is a great message dis- discipline by trans charities and trans activists that they just simply will not engage with it and not talk about it. And that's happened in the, you know, in the case of, I think prisons would be the other big example, right? That you just say, well, this just never happens. And then it does happen. Then you say, but it's incredibly rare, or you just simply just won't engage with it at all. And I think this was an example of that. So the the line was basically the Tavistock was shut down because it's incredibly long waiting lists. Right. And that's sort of, I mean, that's part of it, but it's not, it's definitely not if you actually read the CAS report all of it. And you know what, I actually think it's a reasonable point. The waiting list were far too long. And the two things can coexist, right? Which is both that you can wait two years to get through the door of the clinic. And then the treatment can be over hasty once you get in there. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. Um, So the criticisms that they were making about longer waiting lists were in some respects valid. It didn't mean that the treatment wasn't also rushed. Yeah. And to be clear, this does not mean that kids won't have access to puberty blockers in the UK at all. It's just the system is changing. No, but it does seem to me that they're moving towards more of a European model, which is that the first line treatment is therapy right? and hopefully quite intensive talking therapy, particularly for that cohort that is the new style, whether or not you I feel you're allowed to call it rapid onset gender dysphoria this or not. This is a safe like, space. You can say it. Right. But the, but the more the more recent identification so I think everybody I don't know maybe I say this hopefully there are no there are lots of people who don't think there is any such thing as a kind of trans child I take a different view which is that there are some kids who very from a very early age if they're you know male will say I'm but I'm a girl and those people are very different to my mind an unhappy female teenager who I think in my generation would have ended up anorexic. Mm-hmm. And that's what I said to the, I went into the Tavistock to talk to them. They invited me in a couple of years ago. And I said, are you absolutely sure this isn't this generation's anorexia? And we didn't treat those girls who had profound hatred of their body by giving them liposuction. And uh, at around the same time that the news about Tavistock dropped, the legal case of Alison Bailey resolved. Tell us about that. Who is Alison Bailey? I like this. This is like some kind of terrible assault course that you're putting me through. It's like, <laughs> Helen, why don't you come on our podcast and explain the most complicated legal cases of the last five years? Uh, <laughs> Better you than me. Um, so uh, Alison Bailey um, is uh, a barrister. So I just find a way out whether or not the, how did Lawyer. the American legal system does it have the division between solicitors and barristers does this to make no any... we call them lawyers okay. lawyers and attorneys and it's the same thing okay so she's the one the kind who speaks in court basically so it's the same thing it's yeah we don't have a division uh, a division there wow are you missing out at, on... at least not in terms of the of the nomenclature okay cool but the, the the reason that matters is that each barrister is attached to a chamber's I'm aware that a lot of Britain sounds ludicrous. <laughs> and that is. <laughs> when I describe it. Which, or a set, um, which makes them sound like badgers. But um, so, <laughs> so basically you work in a kind of workers collective. It's kind of, it's, you know, it's all dressed up in 18th century language. So it doesn't sound as socialist as that makes it sound. But essentially you all band together with a group of other people who do similar practice to you. And you own it, to, you know, you own this practice collectively. And what that means is that there are heads of, of chambers who are the most senior lawyers there. And then there are clerks, spelt clerks, who give out all the jobs to individual barristers. So in practice, you know, it should be equal, but there's a lot of sort of status seeking. And this was the core of Alison Bailey's complaint. So 
she said she sued both her employers um, for essentially d- discrimination on the grounds of her gender critical beliefs and also Stonewall, the largest LGBT charity in Europe, which has recently become very controversial because of its incredible power over both corporations and government in terms of getting its legislative you know, um, and policy priorities through. So she sued her employer and she sued Stonewall. Yeah, there's a, a, a is it a BBC documentary about Stonewall that's, that's really quite good and it explains exactly what they do and the power that they have that we'll link in the show notes. Yes, um, Stephen Nolan, I would love to, yes, I would love American listeners to hear a very loud boomer Northern Irish man and his like lovely producer who actually understands the like incredibly te- like delicate legislation sort of bellowing at each other. It's, a, it's quite the audio journey, isn't it? It is, it is. Um, but one of the things they looked at was the way that Stonewall had given advice to um, say, you know, take the word mother out of stuff. Uh, you know, say birth parent, uh, all that kind of things, and had pushed for places to support self-identification, you know, getting rid of the medical diagnosis requirement that you have to get a gender recognition certificate. Um, so Alison Bailey sued both of them. She didn't win against Stonewall. There was no proof that they had directly influenced the chambers to, to discriminate against her, but she did win against her chambers um, because they created a kind of hostile working environment. And the, the thing that was interesting is a bit like the Kira Bell case in that what came out during the court case is as interesting as the actual result. So you must be familiar with the person who had to have their support worker mum and their support dog when they testified. No. <laughs> not, okay. I'm not, but it's, no. it sounds very American, actually. So there, it was all conducted over Zoom. And so you had this evidence where Alison Bailey, who, by the way, is a black lesbian survivor of child sexual assault. You know, she got her rapist convicted decades after the fact. Oh, wow. um, so, you know, somebody has been through really genuinely traumatic experiences and then was subject essentially to this kind of, you know, um, hostile environment in her, her chambers. Meanwhile, you've got this evidence for one of the... Um, gender groups who has a support worker there to show them what page they're on in the documents and then has their mom and their dog um <laughs> with them for quotes and quotes moral support and were they all there on the zoom screen well this was the funny thing is that because of the possibility of witness tampering as if your mum could be sitting off screen going don't say that that's self-incriminating <laughs> that they all had to be um they all had to be on camera so that they could see that no one was <laughs> slipping them notes but i just I, I mean, I try like, not to make sure know, the dog isn't slipping the notes. I like that. I try not to be sneery about people's, you know. It, it, do you know the phrase mimophant? I think it's really no. useful. So it's this description of somebody who stamps all over everyone else's feelings like an elephant, but when they themselves are criticized, has the delicate skin of a mimosa flower, you know, that shrinks at the slightest touch. Uh-huh. And I can't help seeing in this discussion quite a lot of people who are mimer fans, which is that they think that someone else should essentially, because of their views, be sort of bullied out of polite society. But they themselves are so exquisitely sensitive that they need all these accommodations in the world. And Snowflakes. Right, but like, if you're not gonna, if you're that person, you are that person who finds it offensive that you and I are kind of thinking, God, you really need your dog with you. But then you can't understand that other people might have similarly tender feelings, right? That they might, but but there's it's it's it only ever kind of goes one way. Only 
only us, the special people, are you know have emotional support needs. You know, Alison is is fine, and you know she collapsed on the first day of the trial and had to be taken to hospital. I think oh, that's right. a, the stress had just kind of you know you, you wait months or years for one of these employment tribunals. Um, but there were a couple of things that kind of came out of it. One of the which is the fact that Stonewall did argue that objecting to self ID is in itself inherently transphobic. You cannot have any good faith objections to it from a feminist perspective. No, you just anything other than self ID is transphobic. And what was the what was the outcome there? Well, so as I say, she she won against the chamber. She won twenty two thousand pounds in damages um, because the chambers tweeted that she was being investigated, um, and they were aggravated damages because basically the, the idea was that the chambers had had treated her so brutally that um, you know this was an award for hurt feelings. She didn't win against. Stonewall, but she did also get another thing. This is what I mean about the process being interesting. She did get the um, the cotton ceiling did get a much wider airing um, <laughs> than it otherwise would have done, um, which I'm sure, yeah, your listeners are overly familiar with at this point. Yeah, unfortunately. So, what's the sort of bigger picture outcome? I saw people on Twitter saying that this that the outcome means essentially that uh, gender critical views cannot be discriminated against in 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 british uh employment is that is that true that does seem to be realistic because it's not just uh, the outcome of maya forstatter's case so maya forstatter who worked for an american um company charity ngo um she her case against them established basically the principle that those views were worthy of respect in a democratic society. They they didn't have to be true, but they were protected like a religious belief, right? So if you believe that humans are a sexually dimorphic species and that you can't literally change sex, that is now protected in the same way as believing that, you know, Jesus literally rose from the dead in the th- on the third day. Um, so, you know, you still can't abuse people at work, but just the, the fact of you believing these things is not now held to be inherently, you know, beyond the pale. So that was quite, you know, really quite important, I think. And this, it, it seems as though, watching from the outside, it seems as though both sides claimed victory. Yeah, because she didn't win against Stonewall and she had crowdfunded on the basis of I am suing Stonewall. Uh, and there has been a concerted anti-Stonewall movement. Sometimes some of the people involved in it being the original founders of Stonewall. But the analysis of them was basically when it was founded in the 80s, it was to campaign against you know homophobic laws, specifically the, this, this law that's a bit like basically a version of the Don't Say Gay Bill, the Parental Rights and Education Bill in Florida, which was basically don't teach or like don't let gay teachers even mention that they're gay, you know, just keep it out of the classroom. So it was kind of founded in that kind of atmosphere. And the analysis of Simon Fanshaw, who's one of the founders, was that it, when gay marriage was passed, gay adoption's legal here, you know, gay people can serve in the military, the legislation on gay rights was kind of done. So if you're Stonewall, do you go, well done, everyone, like, let's go home, let's have a picnic, have a sandwich? No, you don't. You 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 pivot to the, the new thing. And the new thing was then self-ID. I mean, I think the same thing has happened here in the US with organi- organizations like the Human Rights Campaign and GLAAD. They didn't close up shop after the success of gay marriage. And then later last year, after the success of Bostock, uh, of the Supreme Court ruling, they just pivoted. Exactly as you said, this the new issue, and so there's been you know I'm often asked why is why do trans issues take up so much place in the culture right now, and I think that is part of it is that these organizations just switch to the next thing. Yeah, they made this happen, they willed it into existence. The ACLU needs donors, and the donors want those exactly. tweets with claps in them about just say pregnant yeah. people. Um, right, and so you know as ever, I blame rich people. They did this. 
Yeah. Or you can also blame Americans. I always obviously blame America, yeah. And what do you think Americans get wrong when we uh, when we blather on about what's going on in Turf Island? I was trying to think whether or not I find it offensive that it's called Turf Island. Um, <laughs> I think it's funny, although then again, I'm not a resident of it. Um, but I no, no, I don't. But I think I think it's sort of a it, it's kind of a a funny me like the word the word itself has just been through a really interesting evolution, right? And I have always argued really strongly that it shouldn't be used. Um, in copy because I associate it so much with people sending me mad, you know, pictures of guns and, and you know, telling me they want to slit my throat. Um, but I do think it has now sort of been reclaimed by lots of British gender critical feminists. So I think it's one thing that they feel it's okay if they use it. Well, I think it's also one of those things that if it, the, the term turf has been applied to so many people that it's lost, it's it's losing its teeth. Right. And I think actually that's what's really funny about it is, there's not, is there anything more cringe than people trying to be like, uh-huh, it gives them too much credit. They're not real uh, feminists. I actually use, what's the one? Fart, feminist appropriating radical transphobe. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, you shouldn't be in charge of naming things because I just actually yeah. cringed a kidney out of my mouth. <laughs> okay. So... Um... I want to go back for a second to a piece that you wrote that uh, we have talked about before and that I mentioned earlier. It's called The Twitching Generation. Around the world, doctors have noticed teenage patients reporting the sudden onset of ticks. Is this the first illness spread by social media? This was published in The Atlantic. And it was about a sudden uptick in young people, primarily girls, uh, or perhaps we should call them menstruators, exhibiting symptoms of Tourette's, sometimes out of nowhere. And some psychologists think that this may be a social contagion that's spreading uh, on social media, particularly TikTok. Now, there's an obvious parallel here when it comes to gender, but you chose not to make that comparison in the piece, which I think was wise. But I just want to ask you about your thought process there. Yeah, my thought is that you should let it be its own thing without using it as evidence as a poor in something wider and I did you know I did think about it and I, I did ask the doctors and um, the French doctor particularly um, Andreas Hartmann said yes I'd, he actually more of these patients for female quite a few of them were non-binary um, so there is a kind of overlap there in that they are the same typology of patient as ones who present with gender dysphoria but I think the problem with it is is that I just it just felt like bringing everything back into a kind of a proxy war was to kind of disrespect the subject itself. But yeah, I, I got a lot of grief for it. A lot of people were like, oh, Helen Lewis is pretending she hasn't heard of rapid onset gender dysphoria. And I just think, I don't know how you feel about this, but I think that this is such a kind of hot button issue, the whole transgender issue, that it has eaten some people's brains to the extent that it's all they think about morning, noon and night. And I don't want to be that person. And I'm interested in it insofar as I'm interested in feminism. I'm interested insofar as I'm interested in the formation of policy and lobbying. But I do not have any grievance against trans people who want to get on with living their lives. You know, this is not part of some wider right wing backlash to the idea that, you know, men, the idea that sort of everyone's got a bit too overly liberated and wouldn't be, be happier if men were just men and were in lumberjack shirts and like women were pretty. So I try not to like write too much about it. No, I, I think that's wise. And I also think that um, if you had made the comparison in the piece, that would have been the focus of the piece. Right. I, I knew that my audience would probably see the parallel but also there are wider points about the fact that this is a repetitive cycle throughout history and that um you know functional neurological disorder which is what these girls mostly actually have is in itself a really interesting and misunderstood illness and i am really interested in 
Munchausen's. I'm really interested in psychosomatic disorders that appear to have no physical cause. That stuff. And you know, you you've talked about recovered memory therapy here on the on the podcast, right? Like there are lots of things that have echoes across time that are the same underlying dynamics. And it's kind of interesting to study them on their own terms. Yeah, and it, it is interesting that this can it seems like every generation has some version of this. I mean, when I you and I are about the same age, when I was in high school, anorexia, bulimia, and cutters. And it's not as though somebody decides to start slicing lines into their arms or legs on their own like this this idea doesn't come out of nowhere this comes because you see other people do it um which i find totally fascinating but i'm also curious why do you think that this does seem to uh affect girls more than boys it's a really difficult one that wading into kind of quite essentialist ideas of of gender mm-hmm. but i think my hunch is that girls are much more social in a particular way much more their hierarchies are established through much more subtle ways than boys are right that it's not through sport or even through the threat of violence it's uh, you know the social stratification is is much more complicated and fluid and i'm you know i'm i'm generalizing massively from my own experiences but i often feel sometimes that particularly in straight couples you get this weird dynamic where the woman becomes the one that all the emotions run through and all the kind of organization and they maintain the networks with all of their couple friends. Um, And I think that there is something about that, about the fact that sometimes sometimes men have sort of, it's going to sound offensive and I'm not sure I mean exactly like this, but more simple emotional lives, if that makes sense. Uh, I think it does make sense. I think for girls as well, I mean, I can only speak about the experience of being a girl, but I think maybe it's more important for girls to fit in or to be liked in some way. Yeah, my husband is a very, very social guy. He's, uh, you know, I always telling him that he is as, he is as good as a woman, um, which, you know, obviously <laughs> delights him. But like, but he does not spend all day on WhatsApp. Like I'm in 90,000 WhatsApp groups and I sort of live in this constant hub of stream information. And actually, I think, you know, you see it on this pod too, right? You know about a lot of people online. Like if I say to you, oh, have you heard about the Anna Mardol controversy? Of course I have. <laughs> right. Okay. And, and and I just, I know I envy him because he lives a much simpler life where he only yeah. knows about people that we're actually friends with. He doesn't have this right. whole other canon mythology of all these other social relationships and parasocial relationships that he's invested in. So yeah, I'm wildly overgeneralizing from my own experience, but that would be my my hunch about why girls live in these very tight-knit groups that end up being Mm -hmm. very hierarchical. Um, Okay, I want to pivot for a moment and talk about uh, not weird teens on the internet, but weird adults on the internet, uh, particularly Jordan Peterson. There's a a very famous interview that you did with Jordan Peterson for GQ in 2018. It's now been viewed, I believe, over 55 million times. I, I want to play a clip here. This begins with you asking Jordan Peterson about lobsters. And for anyone who has not read the Jordan Peterson canon, the reason is because Peterson likes to compare humans to lobsters because he says both species naturally conform to hierarchies and are driven by status seeking. So we'll play a clip here. Okay. My big problem with the lobsters is that it's scientifically bollocks, right? It's just you cannot read across from lobsters and what they do to what humans do. Of course do. you can. That's why serotonin works on lobsters. But it works you... in two different ways. So if serotonin makes lobsters more aggressive, it makes humans no, it makes them less more aggressive. Right? That's no, what happens. No, that's not right. That, that... Serotonin makes human beings more dominant but less aggressive. Mm. And the only reason it makes them more dominant is because they're less irritable and they're less defensively aggressive. So it's not bollocks. I know my neurochemistry. 
So if you're going to play neurochemistry, let's go and do it. Okay, well you say antidepressants work on lobsters. Yes, they do. They in... make a lobster that's been defeated in a fight more likely to fight again. That's not the same mechanism that it's happens the same in mechanism. humans. Because yes, lobsters it is. It's don't the same get mechanism. depressed as the way the humans are. I think you're anthropomorphizing into a ridiculous degree. These are I creatures that, that urinate out of their faces. I think that uh, the fundamental issue among um, knowledgeable uh, animal behaviorists is that anthropomorphization with animals is generally the appropriate tactic unless you have reason to doubt it. Uh, first of all, Jesse will be very glad to hear that he is not the only one who urinates out of his face. But this, it was a very intense interview, sometimes combative. And I'm wondering what insight you gained into the Jordan Peterson phenomenon after speaking with him. Did you sort of get the appeal after this? I think there's a lot of people who just like his incredible certainty. Um, and I've just come to realize that that's a, that's a personality type that I don't have. And I shouldn't therefore kind of assume that everybody else thinks in the same way I do. You know, I, I think I just end up, I feel, one of the things I feel good about myself is the idea that I think of myself as a free thinker. Like that's something that's really important to me. And, and therefore I kind of feel very suspicious of anybody who, who claims to be dogmatically confident about these kind of things. So I, I, that was something that really came to me. I, you know, it did make me appreciate afterwards. I went into um, the Reddit Jordan Peterson group oh God. because I don't know why I had, I had like a death wish or something, um, but they were actually relatively polite to me. And the thing that was came across a lot of the time was that they were very earnest in the sense of they were people who really cared about like living a better life a, a, a kind of earnest level of self-improvement that I think it would be too easy to be kind of shitty and snarky about right whatever form it's ended up taking these were people who were taking ownership of their own lives and trying to be kind of better men often um so it, that, it kind of made me appreciate that the thing that has bugged me ever since and this is a purely personal gripe is that he went on Joe Rogan so Joe Rogan was nice about me. So thank you. Thank you, Joe. Uh, and said, unlike Kathy Newman, I was a, quote, varsity level player, which my husband sarcastically put on my Christmas card that year. Um, and and then and then said, you know, they're, they're like they're giving you better opponents, at least. And Peterson said that I was rude to him before the interview uh, and that I was animus possessed, which is a Jungian term. So the idea is that both pe both genders have a bit of the other gender in them. And if you're a woman, being animus possessed means that your masculine side is too much to the fore, right? And you're aggressive and dominant. So essentially, like I was giving him mean macho vibes and that uh, that threw him <laughs> off his game. <laughs> you were too butch for Jordan Peterson. And the two things that are really interesting about this is is obviously one I did not, in fact, psych out Jordan Peterson. Like, I've worked as a journalist for some time. I don't generally stroll in and go like, what's up, fuckwit? Let's do the interview. <laughs> like, that's just a very, like, I'm just, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm British. Wait, that's I'm... not, you don't do that, they don't teach that in, in uh, journalism schools in the UK? <laughs> no, funnily enough, like, I, my worry is always that I'm just too, you know, confrontation averse. Um, uh, but, but the other thing was that what that said to me is that actually he didn't think it went well. And his fans really love it, right? They think he's did really well. I, I'm doing a project about um, gurus for the BBC at the moment, so I had to go back to look at the clips. And there was an amazing comment that just made me laugh so much that's left in the last couple of days, which is, you can see this feminist, her chest is going up and down. She's breathing in and out. Uh, you can see <laughs> her rattle chairs. She's breathing. And I was like, really? That's what I'm getting criticised for. This woman inhaled and, and exhaled during the course of this interview. Inhaling and exhaling. He had her on the run. And it's just like... <laughs> 
and you know all these ones about how I'm an NPC, you know, a non-playable character, and all that sort of stuff, and like, uh, you know, oh, he intellectually raped her. She should have charged him for the therapy. All of that stuff. So the the fans, you know, love it. The YouTube comments are like universally positive in favor of him. But the um, the Rogan clip gave me the idea that maybe there was a tiny scintilla of doubt in his mind that he had, because I think you know I'm not at all objective. I think he was kind of grumpy, and he was in the middle of a really long tour. And, you know, he's being hustled from one thing to another. And I and I don't object, you know, I think that's perfectly reasonable to be grumpy in the circumstances. I wouldn't have wanted me firing 90 minutes of questions about, you know, lobsters uh, and the pay gap at me either. But, um, but yeah, it's interesting. Well, his response to that, so this was in 2018. And then in 2021, he went to Russia seeking treatment for benzo addiction. He was put in a medically induced coma for nine days. You wrote about this uh, as well. And then afterwards, he, he tweeted a link to the article and he, and he wrote this. Why do you hate me so much, Helen Lewis? I tried to be a good man. So my question, Helen Lewis, why do you hate him so much? He tried to be a good man. It's just, that's really, I just think, I read that and I thought, okay, let's mute that, that, that thread. But I just thought you're not in a, you're not in a good place, are you? Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel very much with him that celebrity has been the mask that has eaten the face. Um, that he, st- he very early on, and I wrote this in a column, and this is quite mean, my friend Adam Rutherford, who is a geneticist, said he is evolving into a bellend in front of our very eyes, the selection pressure being attention. Yeah, yeah. He does. He seems to me one of those characters who I, I do think that a lot of the the criticism that he got, the hate that he got was unwarranted, but he does seem to have evolved into a sort of caricature. He's sort of become the person who his critics said he was in the beginning, um, which I find unfortunate for him and for those of us who defended him. So how would you describe his trajectory over the last couple of years to somebody who hasn't been paying attention to Jordan Peterson? I think he started off as a biblical scholar, a scholar of mythology. Uh, Maps of Meaning is a kind of insane book, but, you know, uh, it's like a big textbook of every sort of uh, story in the world with his own, some of his own strange reflections, like the bit where he goes to a maximum security prison as a young psychology student and mentions for no reason that he was wearing thigh, no, knee high leather boots and a cape. <laughs> and you're like, why, why are you telling? Well, it's like you've turned up dressed as Sherlock Holmes to like meet all these murderers. Um, and then there's this what guy who, um, he meets so he says the murder he gets left alone and the murderers all sort of start like slightly kicking off and he's a bit worried about his safety and then this other guy quiets him down he later finds out that this guy had forced two policemen to dig their own graves before shooting them um and there's another guy's got a huge like axe wound all across his chest and he's like it would have killed a, a lesser man a man like me and you're like okay this is all a bit you know uh psychological on your part why why am i reading this um so so he ha- always had these kind of odd oversharing bits about him um i think from the very start he came to prominence opposing c16 this canadian bill um on gender identity and whether or not you sort of respected people's pronouns and you know i think he made some pretty fair points on that in the light of everything that's since happened in yeah in canada and elsewhere specifically talking about compelled compelled speech and this idea that you should um, be forced to to use someone's pronouns right and i think it's you know it's it's it is deliberately rude not to use someone's pronouns, but the question is whether or not that should be raised to the level of a criminal offence or even a civil offence. Um, so, you know, then 
uh, 12 Rules for Life start out as a Quora list. And, uh, you know, it's quite sweet. Like, no, never interrupt kids when they're skateboarding. Um, pet a cat whenever you see one. Um, you know, and, and this is the book that really made him famous. Yeah, 2 million copies sold and even just in the UK, I think, you know, just huge, 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 huge. Um, and then he kind of took it on tour. Um, and as you say, ended up, he would say not addicted. He would say physically dependent on benzodiazepine. Um, yeah, huge difference. Which is, well, because he had previously given statements about the fact that drug addicts basically kind of needed to, you know, shape up and get over themselves. Yeah, like that very room. like bootstrappy kind of ethos. But when it happened to him, it was a physical dependency. Um, and, you know, just kind of, he gave a very odd interview to Nellie Bowles at the New York Times when he talked about enforced monogamy and then kind of had to row that back when he said actually wanted incentives to marriage not like everyone every man in the US gets allocated a woman like that wasn't he claimed what he was talking about at all but yeah I think he was using a to briefly defend him I think that enforced monogamy is actually a, a common term within sociology that doesn't translate well to the labor so yeah but there were there were lots of things like that I think where he danced around something and people read more into it than was there, or maybe he didn't. He wasn't clear enough about the limits of what he was proposing or what his views were. And he did always have this sort of slight enthusiasm for strongmen, which culminated in a very bad call, in my view, which is that he went over to have a private meeting with Victor Orban and was photographed with him. And you know, Orban is straightforwardly anti-LGBT. You know, has has you know is a is a very strong natalist. You know, has he's anti-race mixing. He, yeah, he's. I, I want. I don't want more immigrants. I want more Hungarians. You know, he is. He believes that you know, Europe essentially should be white. Um, so this is, you know, this is someone with some fairly tastily authoritarian views. He's been very strong. He's closed down news, independent newspapers and journalism in Hungary. Like so, for somebody as Peterson, who really is animated above all, perhaps by anti-totalitarianism, to not see totalitarianism when it was staring in the face because the guy was saying the same anti-woke things that he was, was a, a big intellectual swing and a miss for, for me. Yeah, absolutely. And some of his his personal, like I heard him on, I believe on Joe Rogan, he said that he drank two tablespoons of apple cider cider vinegar and, didn't, and literally didn't sleep for a month, no sleep for a month. So when he says stuff like that, it's hard to even believe him. Well, that's the bit where, and this is probably maybe gets libelously conspiratorial for me, but it's one of the things I think has always been fascinating about him presenting himself as this arch rationalist. And in that video, with the interview with me, you know, I was the feminist, right? I was the silly lady trying to make these blank slate arguments that don't, you know, and unfortunately science just doesn't hold them up or whatever. But he has got a strong attraction both towards Christianity and religious faith, which by definition can't be proved, and also to what I would call woo, big lover oh, of the yeah, world. Dream, dream interpre interpretation. And like you say, it's just physically not possible to be awake for as long as he claims to have been awake. And he says it was the sulfites that, that did it. And then, you know, his daughter is now, his daughter pivoted to being a wellness influencer. Then they all went to mm -hmm. Serbia and, you know, to avoid COVID restrictions and caught COVID. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. which is you know not something I would have advised anyone to do particularly as his lungs are in a pretty weak state from the coma um, and she's now pivoted again and has become a trad wife yeah a trad wife who I assume is cooking lots of uh, lots of meat for her husband and, and and then they only eat this carnivore diet so it's been a really it's a, that's why I think he's sort of so fascinated people he's he and I said this to him in the interview I can't fit it all together like with someone like Sam Harris you know there's a coherence to everything that sort of all hangs together. But Peterson is like this sort of hermit crab that's got bits 
kind of awkwardly butting up next to each other. I mean, it's one of the reasons that he, I, I think he's sort of so fascinating as, and, and so many people, because you can like one bit of him and the other people don't see that. You know, when I went to see him, and I wrote this in the Atlantic article, when I went to see him speak in Long Island, the first question was something like, you know, how do I get my baby to sleep? It wasn't like, what's the future of the white race? Or, you know, are women's IQs lower than men? It was like, basically, like, help me. I'm so tired. Make my life better. And and, and for those people, I imagine all the kind of media chit-chat about him completely goes over their head. And they just know him from the books, which are generally quite sort of sweet and, you know, bland, I guess. Yeah, and simple as well. I, I, I saw him speak a couple of times. And my the impression that I walked away with is that he's basically regurgitating, regurgitating psychology 101 um, to an audience that doesn't recognize it. There was some really, I mean, the thing is, he just, like all people who get anointed as gurus, he strays far beyond his own competence. So the lecture I went to, he started talking about flat screen TVs and why they were so cheap. And then he said, I want to talk now about the gays. Right. And I perked up um, at this point. Uh, and But what he was actually going to talk about was how monkeys look at each other and they all look at the high status monkey. And you were like, what? what's this got to do with flat screen TVs? It's like a roller coaster. It's quite the roller coaster we're going on here. Um, and the worst of being about that was that he had Dave Rubin introduce him. And Dave Rubin made everyone do a sing-along to no. The Doors, Relight My Fire, with everyone doing the shouting at the end. So he's like, come on, baby, light my... And we'll go, fire! And then he goes, see, you can shout fire in a crowded theatre. <laughs> Oh Which God. may be the dadliest dad joke that I have ever heard. <laughs> oh boy! Oh boy! Okay, let's uh, let's talk about your new project, uh, your BBC radio documentary, "The Church of Social Justice." Let's play a clip from the introduction here. There's a phrase you hear a lot online: "Wokeness is a religion." It's not intended as a compliment. When people say that, they're arguing that political movements, particularly on the left, can be pious and preachy, obsessed with hunting down heretics. But in this programme, I want to take that idea seriously. Is politics the new religion? Are modern social justice activists really the new Puritans? Is social media, where heretics are now metaphorically burned at the stake, with a lot of the culture wars, for want of a better phrase, there is that almost religious fundamentalist fervor to the turn of the debate. When people are being chased out of their jobs and pilloried in the stocks in public for what used to be seen as minor transgressions, all of this is very Galileo's inquisitors. I was thinking about that Marx quote, that religion is the opium of the people. I think what we've got now is politics is the amphetamines of the people. So, Helen, the premise of the documentary is basically you're asking the question, is social justice or wokeness a new religion? Or perhaps more broadly, has it replaced religion in society? And this is something I've wondered a lot. And as someone I was raised as an atheist, I've barely stepped uh, inside a church in my entire life, although I did take communion uh, at a Costa Rican wedding to make my wife laugh. Right, so you're going to hell, right? That's, uh, that's good to know. <laughs> and the the wedding was entirely in Spanish, so I didn't know what was happening at all. So I, I'm sort of surprised to find that I'm not religious at all. I, you know, I, I've no spiritual inclinations. I don't even really believe in the soul. But I'm surprised to find that in recent years, 
I sometimes think that the decline of religion may actually have some negative consequences because for most of my life, I would have thought, you know, a, a secular society is a better society. You were raised in the Church of England, but left it during college. And I wonder if you've, if you've been thinking the same thing. Could we use a little more religion in society? It's even more uh, full bore than that. I was raised as a Catholic. Uh, oh, a Catholic. Yeah, my dad is a deacon in the Catholic Church, so he's the Reverend Mr. Lewis. And my mum was oh, wow. a religious education teacher and a Eucharistic minister. So they weren't just like, they believed a little bit in God. They were like, we believe a lot in God and we will put on dresses and give sermons to tell you about it. Um, so they're in the documentary, which is, I, let me just say, if you ever think about, oh, it'd be, wouldn't it be really nice to make a podcast with my parents? Don't do it. They, they <laughs> will not funny. be. They will not be herded. That is the main thing. You cannot herd and corral your parents into doing things. They will just. They will just start telling your producer random things, <laughs> and you'll be like, "It's half an. Come on, come on, let's go." Anyway, so just opt out of that night. More difficult than Jordan Peterson. Oh my! Like he was an absolute lamb. Bless him. Like he obviously was tired, so tired, and just turned up and took all these photos, and and then was berated by me for ninety minutes. Um, my dad would not have that. Let me tell you. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I wanted to, you know, because I think it's often said really glibly, right? You know, oh, wokeness is this new religion, and I thought, but is it though? And like, let's take that question really seriously. And I think I'm in exactly the same place as you. Like, So you and I being the same age would have come up at the same time and that our kind of teenage 20-something rebellion coincided with when the new atheists were really big, when Christopher yeah. Hitchens wrote God is not great, Richard Dawkins wrote The God Delusion. So that was like, along with being a goth, that was kind of the acceptable palette of rebellion, I think. It was the, it was the, in the equivalent of the uh, early 2000s, late 90s. Right, exactly. And it was the, and, and not... You know, um, it was countercultural as well, particularly in America, where you've never had an openly atheist president. And I'm not sure you could win the presidency if you were openly atheist. You know, even Donald Trump sort of pretended he knew who God was and that he deferred to some idea of a kind of higher being than him. I'm convinced that Barack Obama was lying when he said that he believed in God too. Everything about Barack Obama, like demographically and intellectually, just says to me, secretly listens to Sam Harris's podcasts. Um, yeah. But yeah. But you can't, you obviously couldn't admit it. Um, so, uh, you know, I had the same thing and particularly, uh, you know, growing up in the 90s when gay rights were a big issue, I thought it was appalling that the Catholic Church was against gay rights and gay marriage and that didn't, still doesn't have women priests. The idea that women aren't able to lead, you know, liturgy, even though as I looked around the parish, women were doing all of what I would call the grunt work in the sort of flower arranging, organising stuff way, but it was still an explicitly male hierarchy. Um, so, you know, that's why I kind of left, plus base, the basic fact that I didn't believe in God. But as you Mention, you know, that's not really a bar in the Church of England, certainly, which mostly like does sort of tombolas um, and light hymn singing. And if you believe in God, it's kind of a bonus. <laughs> like they're like the Jews. Yeah, exactly. Like it's mostly about the food, uh, <laughs> and <laughs> uh, you know, and they're kind of just having it somewhere warm on a Sunday night. But um, well, I mean, I do, I do think that is a, a major. Like when I say I think that we could use more religion in society, I'm not really saying that I think we need. A more belief in a higher power that I frankly don't think exists. What I'm saying is that we need more community. We need a place to go and something to feel bonded to other people. Yeah. And it's kind of the bowling alone thesis about the degradation exactly. of kind of communities and institutions. But I do think in a way that the higher power kind of helps. And it's interesting to me that Alcoholics Anonymous is run in a sort of explicitly religious framework because it's about accepting your own powerlessness 
and that's I think that's if if you don't defer to the higher power, then sort of who is the higher power? Is it in fact you? Um, but I, I I think the main problem is that 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 kind of level of religious organisation doesn't go away, even if religion doesn't. And I find it difficult as well because again, if you'd asked me this question sort of twenty years ago, I would have talked to you about you know the opium of the masses and religion causing all these wars and whatever but all of which is true all of which is completely true and sectarianism is a huge vice that besets um religion and tribalism but it turns out you can have those things just between like the knitters and the crocheters you don't need to have it between the catholics and the protestants in northern ireland like people can find divide themselves in ways that create an outgroup over pretty much anything Absolutely. I mean, I think that in the US, especially having a two party system, that's what politics are. Right. And actually, to some extent, that I don't know, that just seems to be something I, I wonder if we'll ever get away from. But um, yeah, and I also wonder if, like, the thing that I really like about so we talked to a rabbi um, talking about Judaism, Rabbi um, Laura Jana Klausner, who's a reform rabbi. And she said something I didn't know before, which is that one of the things about Jewish study is that you're never allowed to study alone, you have to study in pairs. So it's always a negotiation. Well, I think this means this. Well, I think this means this. And then you have to kind of come to terms with it. And also the idea, she said, that, you know, if I don't like someone, I still have to go to their morning prayers. I still have to bring them a gift when they um, have a baby. I still have to, you know, do the funeral for somebody that I found very annoying. And that level of sense of I have an obligation to everybody, even if I personally don't like them, is something that I just don't think internet culture has replicated very well, right? No, I think it's the opposite of that. Yeah, right. People who agree with me are righteous and everything they do is righteous and I should defend everything that they do because they're the righteous ones. And people who are opposed to me, I should interpret everything they do in the worst possible faith. Okay, so in order to answer this question, is social justice a religion? You speak to a bunch of different people, including uh, John McWhorter, who's I'm sure familiar to our audience here. And you also talked to a guy named uh, Tomawa. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, Tomawa Oilade. Okay. Can you introduce him and then we'll play a, uh, we'll play a clip? So one of the people I talked to is Tomawa Oilade, who writes for Unheard and is currently writing a book about how Britain has imported culture wars. But he's written some really interesting stuff about black African religion coming to the UK and how important that is. Do you see more of people describing their opponents as not just wrong, but evil? Because I feel like that's something that perhaps in the last 20 years of, of being an adult for me, I've, I feel like I've, I've seen it more. Again, I don't know if that's just social media. I think that's definitely true. You see that often on dating apps as well. <laughs> so, so on certain dating apps, people will say, don't message me if you're a Tory, for example. <laughs> I think that's another way in which politics, political beliefs is seeping into people's personal lives and people's very moral fibre. Like I told Tomawa, I'm just impressed that young people these days are so choosy. But what he's describing is a real phenomenon. Over the past 50 years, polling by Pew Research shows that Americans have become much, much more relaxed about their children dating someone from another race. But in the same time, they've become much less relaxed about their children dating across political lines. Our political beliefs have become a much more important reflection of our characters. Is that happening in Britain too? To test the hypothesis, I spoke to someone who is both a proud Christian and happy to self-define as woke. Does your religion and your activism come from the same place inside you? Are they indivisible? I would say so for me. And I do struggle with the idea of me like converting someone else. Like my partner's not Christian, but politically we're very 
the same. And I mean, my best friend's Muslim and I wouldn't want to kind of think about how to like convert him to Christianity. I think that's like violence, really. This is Victoria Turner, editor of an anthology called Young, Woke and Christian, which argues that the church needs to become increasingly awake to injustices in British society. But what about if he was a conservative voter? Could you date a conservative voter? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> so atheists, yes, but conservatives, no. Why, why? Why Why couldn't you convert the conservative? I think it's because of how it impacts other people. For me, like, I can see that, like, capitalism is like a false god, that people worship money, they worship success. I see that as, like, what I'm here to fight against. Like, whether your god looks exactly the same as my god, I don't know. I don't know the answer to those questions. But I do know what the answers are to stop people from suffering and to make the world a more equitable place, which I think is what the gospel is calling us to do. So the young woman there who says that she couldn't date a Tory, I know you're married, but I'm curious, could you date a Tory? I have dated a Tory. Uh, My university boyfriend, I think I was going to say he's a Tory councillor, he certainly ran for election. Um, So yeah, there was a big thing during the a labor labor leadership election that led to Jeremy Corbyn where one of the candidates was said had a t-shirt that said never kissed a tory which i just thought was dumb and i was like not only that but i i objectively cannot wear that t-shirt yeah there's sort of the purity politics this taking pride in the fact that you don't know anybody or would never associate with somebody with different political views. We saw a lot of that, particularly on Facebook, I think, after the Trump election. I saw a lot of people that I really deeply care about and and respect saying, you know, uh, if you're a Trump supporter, unfriend me now, things like that, which at the time in 2016 sort of made sense to me. But now I see it as incredibly destructive and for the reason that we're in so many of these social predicaments that we're in now. Could you date a Trump supporter? I haven't met that many. Okay, let's say a uh, let's say a Boris Johnson fan. I mean, I've got f- I've got friends who are Boris Johnson fans, and yeah, and so I th- I don't think that would be impossible. I think you know Karl Popper's paradox of tolerance is kind of applicable here, right? Which is what are the limits of your tolerance? And for me, somebody who fundamentally doesn't believe in democracy, that's probably my my line uh, on the basis that you know without that we don't have any arena in which to disagree if you know we're living under a totalitarian system where everyone has to think the same thing but um yeah i i i could i could date a, a lib dem i could date a scottish nationalist i could date an lc unionist i could date a member of Sinn Féin. You see, I'm naming British political parties. I was tempted to slip in one there that was just a lie that wasn't a, a real one. <laughs> I wouldn't notice. <laughs> <laughs> I could date someone from the green stockings. Yeah, that would be fine. Uh, your your husband might not feel that way. <laughs> no, I'd probably have to clear it with him first. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is something that we've obviously seen quite often in the US, the sense that people who have different political beliefs than us are just wrong. They're evil. or they're, They aren't just wrong. They're bad. And if they're bad, they're evil. Is this true in the UK as well? I think it's less acute because the political spectrum is narrower. So, you know, there are people in the Tory party and, you know, the left of the Tory party and the right of the Labour Party whose views aren't that far apart. Um, Whereas I just think the span in the US is so much wider. Like what really, you know, if you're going to bring together kind of sort of ultra left wing you know, um, identity politics fan and somebody who's sort of a borderline white nationalist, they're just not go- like, what, what are the things that they're going to bond over? It's going to be quite hard. Sports, to- maybe. Maybe sports. But the, the thing that came out, and this is more true in the polling of America, is that a generation or two ago, it was perfectly 
sort of people would say to pollsters, which is already a pie bar, right? Because people don't want to make themselves look bad in front of pollsters. A quite a, a high percentage of Americans said they were uneasy about their kid dating someone of another race and right. another religion, presumably too, in some cases. And now that has really diminished. People are just very chill about that now. But what has gone up in the same time is cross-party dating. So Democrat parents, if their kid brings home like someone in a MAGA hat, are going to feel the way that a nice white liberal couple in the 50s would have been, you know, a bit alienated by their their daughter bringing home a black man. And so the positions have essentially swapped. One outgroup has one version of creating an outgroup has kind of replaced the other. Oh, absolutely. I mean, bringing home a woman would not make my parents bat an eye, but if I brought home a woman in a MAGA hat, that, then we'd have some issues. <laughs> right, which was really interesting when I talked to Alex Clare Young, who is a non-binary minister in the United Reformed Church, and I said, is it harder to be, which was harder to come out as, a Christian or non-binary? And they told me, you know, it was much harder, people will say to them, it's harder to be Christian in an LGBT space than it is to be LGBT in a Christian space. Mm-hmm. Which is a kind of, I have to say, not an enormously good reflection on the LGBT movement, right? That actually just Christian on its own, absent anything else, is enough to make you go, oh, I don't want to be with like one of those people. But it's also an interesting reflection of the fact that to be LGBT or a member of the LGBT movement is now seen as being inherently left wing, right? Whereas a lot of the success of that movement, particularly the gay rights movement, was about right wing, powerful gay men. Um, and and the fact that because and I think this is about partly about the the move in the last couple of years of the movement is because being gay was sort of something that you just were born you you, you had this discussion didn't you about like where is the non-binary Republican um, it is now something that is much more aligned with a certain kind of set of values and, and lifestyle than it was fifty or sixty years ago oh absolutely it, which is as you mentioned it's sort of ironic because. The, the big gay rights battles in my lifetime, things like gay marriage, are actually conservative values. Yeah, and I think it's one of the reasons that they eventually had a certain level of success. And it's also one of the things I think about the, the trans movement now is that the, uh, the arguments over things like self-ID have camouflaged how far we've come. So there were certain things like the example of just using people's preferred pronouns, even if those are whether those are he or she or whether or not they're they, actually. Um, and, and everybody just collectively went, that seems like a reasonable request. That's, you know, people should be allowed to be called whatever they want in the same way that we let people change their names when they get married or whatever it might be. And that just sort of happened and no one really fought it. Um, so there are there have been quite big strides in, in language and approach that just have gone unnoticed really because they weren't contested in the same way. Okay, well, uh, at, a ri- at the risk of spoiling your documentary, can you give us a yes or no answer? Is social justice a new religion? I think it is, yes. Um, I think it has replaced uh, both the the bad bits of religion for some people in the sense of that tribalism, looking for heretics, the narcissism of small differences, sectarianism, but also the good bits. And not just the kind of collectivism and the sense of belonging and a sense of meaning and purpose in life, but also... Um, the same thing. So one of the things Tommy Wire said was about the idea of you know, Trump rallies or a BLM march. You know, those are places where you can have a kind of transcendental experience. Um, I think it's what Durkheim called collective effervescence, right? This idea that there are some emotions you can only access as part of a group. You feel kind of deeply connected to the universe and people around you when you're all chanting like either lock her up or, you know, um, trans lives matter. That the, the that you can only access those emotions through now politics and they would have once been accessed through religion. Absolutely. Well, how, how can people hear it? 
You can find it on the BBC website and the BBC Sounds app from the 16th of August. All right. Well, it's a great documentary. I quite enjoyed it. And everybody give it a listen. Uh, Helen Lewis, thank you so much for joining us on Black and Reported. Thank you for having me. All right. A little housekeeping before we leave. You can contact us at blockedandreported at gmail.com. Check us out on Reddit. And most importantly, we have a subscription program. If you go to blockedandreported.org and sign up for just $5 a month, you get three extra episodes of this show every month. We recorded one this week on a Oh, God. It has something to do with Lockheed Martin and Twitter and a non-binary person who may or may not exist. Just check it out. Blockedandreported.org. Your support really makes a difference and is the reason we can keep doing this show. As always, our show is produced with help by Tracing Woodgrains. Thank you, Trace. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Katie Herzog. And remember, Jesse? Jesse who? Who?